winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 32nd episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gomadra. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull, and I'll be your host today. This episode features a return to Iona, where I chat with Joanne McInnes. A proud Dundonian, Joanne has lived on Iona for many years now, where she and her husband John are raising their family. We talk about Dundonian cultural identity, college life, work life, and what it's like to move into a small community and make your life there. We also mention the Iona Village Hall Music Festival, which I've always wanted to go to, but haven't yet managed to make it over to. Our conversation was recorded in Iona Village Hall, which we talk a bit about at the end. Iona are in the process of fundraising to build a new hall, which you can find out more about in the links on the webpage. At one point in the episode, you'll hear a new version of the podcast theme, as recorded by Hamish Napier, which I'm delighted to have. Thank you, Hamish. In this episode, you'll also hear quite a lot of birdsong outside the windows. And now, with great pleasure, I give you Joanne McInnes. Who are you? I'm Joanne McInnes and I uh, live on Iona. I'm a wife of a farmer as opposed to a farmer's wife. Mm-hmm. Mother to two boys, fundraiser as a job yeah. and various other uh, busybodying. <laughs> and uh, where are you from orig- originally? Uh, Dundee. Dundee, fantastic. So how do you feel about, have you been back to Dundee recently at all? Yeah, lots. Try and get back quite regularly. Yeah. But I haven't been into the v and yet. Oh, I'm, I'm de- yeah, I'm desperate. Desperate to go. It looks fantastic. I love the way that Dundee's changing. It's just brilliant. And uh, yeah. Were you born in the city itself or were you born? Yeah, born in, at Nine Mills Hospital. Yeah. I grew up in Dundee, right actually bang in the middle of mm. Dundee. So in our city, possibly yeah. as far away from the marker of Iona, <laughs> in comparison, as as you can get, really. What was it like growing up in Dundee? What what are the sort of things you did for fun? Were you like so? I'm a theatre person, obviously. So were you conscious of going to the rep for things, or were you just? Yeah, I absolutely loved the limelight when I was growing up as a child. I played in the orchestra, oh, wow. um, sang in a choir. Loved loved being on stage, which again is a million miles away from my comfort zone now. Um, but yeah, was was involved in lots of things. That, and, and the rep was actually our kind of local, because we were right in town, yeah. if there was outreach stuff going on, you know, we didn't have like a community centre. Mm. So we went to the swimming or to the rep or to the cared hall for things. Oh. So, <laughs> uh, or, or just generally to the Wellgate Centre uh, to yeah. hang out. Did lots of sports, uh, unbelievably. Mm-hmm. I was probably the person in my family that had hobbies. Like I always had, did things, whether it was gymnastics or brownies or whatever. I would I would give everything uh, a try, basically. Uh, and Dundee, I think you know Dundee's not dissimilar to Mull and Iona in the way that um, you grow up knowing that you're really from a place. Yeah. You know, it's got a very definite identity. Yeah. And I think there's you know I, I know that. And there's lots of places that, that you could say that about, but I think Dundee has a very definite character. It really does, um, yeah. But definitely growing up, it wasn't a particularly 
positive one from the outside. Yeah, I guess you grew up in the 80s. And yes, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, 80s, early 90s. And then moving away from Dundee when I went off to college, I realised actually how negatively people perceived Dundee, which was kind of frustrating. But mm. What was the reality of living in Dundee for you as a young person? I, I mean, I don't think it was particularly... I, you know, it certainly was... It was a it's a very green city. Yeah. There's loads and loads of parks. There's loads of actually quite a lot of things for young people to do. There was always the good, good museums and the the swimming was always like people came from far and wide to go to Olympia, you know. Yeah, no, it's I would say and good schools. I really enjoyed high school and had lots, you know, a wide range of friends and stuff. So I wouldn't say it was it was grim. What, what, what are the features of Dundonian cultural identity that are so strong? You, would you say that kind of make it make it kind of a, a very present? It's basically Dundee's a city, but it feels like a large village. People know each other, right. and if they if they didn't ken each other, they ken somebody that ken somebody. You know, <laughs> it's. Everybody kind of knows. <laughs> it's like Mullinayo. Yeah, it actually is. It, you know, like you know, you lots can't of people on the west side without the east side so laundry blown off. Exactly. You like even if you don't <coughs> particularly know people, you kind of know their context, um, and you know their yeah. business yes. a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a like a, a big, big village. When I was growing up. In Dundee, there was the Timex strikes, Gosh, um, yeah, yeah. and and that was kind of a big. And the poll tax yeah. was, you know, I remember. Gosh, you were there, yeah, of course. Uh, it, that being like a, a massive thing, and people you knew, yeah. family members being, you know, sacked or blacklisted because they were striking. And it's a really kind of uh, Dundee has a very strong like working class ethic, you know, yes. and it's got all the social clubs and everything are all attached to different workplaces. Yes. Um, so, th- yeah, there was a really strong kind of, I suppose, culture of of that. Like, I suppose that was a bit of, I suppose it was a bit of an angry time. But I think it also yeah. felt a bit kind of, like, people were engaged in it, you know, and really, and, like, you know, I know people who were blacklisted in the Timex strikes who have then gone on to train to be lawyers themselves, you know, because of that whole... That's Which, amazing. Yeah, uh, so there was definitely something that came out of it, but yeah, I suppose they were pretty. I mean, I was young; I would have been like yeah. nine or something. But oh, I can remember, um, I remember saying to my mum and my my gran, I mean, I don't know why they don't just sack them all. And they were like, "My daughter's a Tory." <laughs> I was going, no. I learned very quickly <laughs> that actually ah. that's not how striking. <laughs> Sweet fascism of childhood. <laughs> yeah, the simple approach of a nine-year-old. Nail them up! Just sack them all if they won't go to work. And my mum and actually everybody just being appalled. Oh, like, amazing. Oh, God, how could you even say that? So I guess I suppose you... Yeah, you, you were aware, I suppose, of how politics affects your life yeah. on a very much day-to-day basis from quite a young age. Uh, and I'm sure that's the same in lots of places like mining villages and everything. But yeah. Dundee was quite large scale for for that kind of thing. <clears throat> the Caird Hall was a significant place in Dundee as well. What bands did you see at the Caird Hall? Because 
go back two generations before us and you've got the Beatles. Not even one generation before us and you've got your parents go to see the Beatles at the Caird Hall. Um, my granny worked at the Caird Hall as a cleaner and she always said how much she, like it was great she would just have a wee cup of tea with now who was it? <laughs> Shirley Bassey no that she met and Shirley Bassey had her curlers up and my gran was appalled because she saw her without her hair all done and everything. I, I can't really think who it's obviously not very memorable. I remember mm-hmm. my sister going to see Aha and I was absolutely green with envy. Oh, I love that. Absolutely green with envy. Yeah, I mean, the the care toll, it, it attracted quite a lot of big names and now it's back to doing that as well and especially with the development round the back, the lesser gardens and stuff. Um, it's definitely back on the, the, the network. I'm very, very fond of Dundee. I must say it's... Um... Yeah. There's a great sincerity to it. And I, I, I'm also really interested in the linguistic identity of Dundee as well, because it's it's Scots and it's a very strong Scots identity as well, but it's not it's not Glasgow or Edinburgh Scots, it's its own Dundonian Scots. Yeah. And are you were you conscious of that growing up, that you that you, were, you were speaking um, Scots? Are we conscious of it? Just... Yeah, when we were growing up, the, the, the like things came out like the Dundee Dictionary. Oh, brilliant. Um, and you know what? I've never been able to lay my hands on it because I wanted to get it for my boys. Yeah. Um, and I've never been able to get my hands on it again. Um, and I think that's when you kind of uh, were aware that linguistically there yeah. was a variation but also that it was kind of comedy yeah. you know like yeah. um Gallus, this is who we are yeah yeah <laughs> and then certainly when I went away to like when I moved away from Dundee I was really aware that people identified you right away by your accent yeah. my accent softened dramatically yeah. but uh, my husband does say that when I go home he's always like what? I beg your pardon. Sorry, <laughs> you, sorry, sorry, what was that? Um, because we all talk very fast and at the same time <laughs> and just in completely different language, which apparently is how your brain manages the Dundee accent. Oh, really? Uh, well, yeah, apparently there was a, there was, um, <laughs> they did the research and they found out that the Dundee dialect was one of the few dialects that the brain processes in the same way as a different language Fantastic. rather than just a, a dialect, which I kind of like that. That's amazing. My younger brother, he works with my husband on an event in Edinburgh and the first year that he went to work on the event, um, he was chatting away in the boardroom and in, in, in the office yeah. and the chair of the board was there at the time and then he turned to my brother and said, now which part of Denmark are you from? <laughs> and Crystal just went... Uh, Fintry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he's forever been called like Danish. Uh, uh, yeah, because they just couldn't believe that he was talking a like That's talking actually English. That's brilliant. Yeah, I do like it. We do have the Dundee Gruffalo yes. at home, and my boys just like it's hilarious because they read it and they go, oh, "We just sound like Uncle Christopher." <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So you've gone from Dundee and you go off to college. What did you do at college and where did you go? I totally incongruously went to agricultural college, um, not to do agriculture, but to do leisure and recreation management in Ayr, Auchincrove, SAC Auchincrove. The the kind of plan had been to do something like sports science or physiotherapy or something and... 
But then I got my uh, unconditional from SAC and I kind of then just enjoyed the rest of my sixth year at school and accepted that. So that was, yeah, that proved to be pretty pivotal because I met John there. Right, okay. Who was also at Agricultural College not doing agriculture. Uh, He was doing environmental science and technology. I was doing leisure and recreation management with rural tourism, which... Again, I don't even know why I chose it at that point, oh, but it certainly, it's, it's certainly, it certainly became useful. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was kind of coincidence, I suppose, yeah. that I'd, I'd gone down that route. So what, what was that like? I presume you're sort of 17, 18. 18, yeah. Moving was... from quite a, quite a large city to Auchincrew, which is quite a small place um, on the West Coast. I, I knew that I wanted to go away uh, to to study, and yet when the real when I actually had to go, I was just so homesick and so horrendously yeah. <laughs> homesick. Um, and Auchincroft was lovely actually because it was about twelve hundred students, kind of set in the countryside. It wasn't intimidating in any way, you know. It was lovely size, really nice setting, but I absolutely hated it and everybody in it for about six weeks the first six weeks and I was just devastated and then um, I basically ran out of money and so couldn't go home at the weekend because I was going on the train home every weekend and then you know the money ran out and I couldn't so I just had to stay and that's when actually things started to improve I look back on my years at Auchincroft very fondly Um, where's Auchincroft closest to is it air? Yeah, there's air and then Prestwick, and it's kind of out in the countryside. It's not there anymore. Right, okay. Raised it to the ground. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's all demolished. It doesn't even exist. Um, it but was yes, never there. It was maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a figment exactly. of our imagination. It's the Indiana Jones College. <laughs> <laughs> what was what was the course like? What so from having an interest in sports through to through to this? What was that? What was that like to to be suddenly looking at the economics of how you keep a a rural community visual and viable? How was what was that like? Uh, I loved my I loved my degree because it started off as you say from this interest in kind of sports and outdoor pursuits really that I was kind of enthusiastic about. I chose all of the subjects just based on whether I found them interesting or. Uh, at all and not whether they went together to make any kind of qualification so over the four years you did everything from economics to play development to golf course design to (laughs) outdoor pursuits lots of things like planning paths in the countryside you know like loads of just really interesting useful uh, things actually yeah yeah actually a really really interesting uh, degree and I thoroughly enjoyed it you didn't actually get the kind of rural tourism part until um, the third and fourth year yeah it was it was a really interesting course John on this course. What were your first impressions of John? Suffice to say, I think I spotted him before he spotted me. I was quite good friends with one of his friends and we, we kind of got chatting. Uh, and then we, we got together quite quickly, actually, and John insisted on uh, introducing me to everybody as his future wife, 
which I'm fairly sure is because he couldn't remember my name. That's a little bit scary. <laughs> That's quite intense. Very intense, but it's, it's because he couldn't remember my name. <laughs> That's amazing. Have you uh, met your, your, your wife to be? And to be fair, it's like it's remarkable because Joanne is just the feminine version of John. You know, my yeah. father-in-law just calls us both John. So <laughs> I don't know how he can remember that. That's oh, that's definitely part of the family. Then. Yeah. yeah. So what you what, what did you do for dating in Ochenkruv? Did you go into air or press? No, no. We just went to there was a really um, rubbish student. Union Bar at Auchincroof, uh, affectionately known as the Classy Cronin Bar. And pretty much that was the, the, yeah, I mean, we sometimes went into air. I think we maybe went to the pictures once or twice. Um, but, you know, it was kind of just, we're students, so there was lots of cider and blackcurrant and... Thursday nights in yeah, Student Union. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we were both in the halls of residence, so not really dating in the sense is just kind of, oh, are you kind of going out? Like, but we moved out of the halls of residence and got a house with five, there was seven of us in total, John and I, and then, was there seven? Six of us uh, and four other friends. Um, and that was just a riot. That was great fun. Stu- student accommodation's just, yeah. uh, it's so tricky. But yeah, I was pretty lucky. Uh, and right then, through all the years that we studied, like we went into second year, we stayed with much the same household, a couple of different characters. Yeah. Uh, third year, John went to Paisley to finish his degree. Okay, third yeah. and fourth year was at Paisley. So we moved to Troon and Barassi uh, with one other friend. Was okay? Yeah, yeah, it was all right. I actually quite liked. Um, it probably added to my uh, tendency to think I was really a student pensioner <laughs> like I quite yeah. liked you know by that point I, you know life was quieter yeah. uh quite enjoyed like sitting in the garden that kind yeah. of thing. Troon's a nice plenty of sunlight in Troon. Absolutely. I think it's got lots of. The best thing about Troon was we lived right next to the swimming pool and John couldn't swim oh, right. and I and I took him every day and taught him to swim because I just couldn't believe that you could be on an island and you know in boats and everything and not be able to swim but of course I now know the reality is yeah. how do you learn to swim <laughs> on an island yeah, so it's very difficult we're talking of islands then what was your first thought when you were introduced to Iona um so John came home to work the summer he was working on the fishing boat with we Davy Kirkpatrick um, and I sadly was working in Burger King <laughs> in air. It was <laughs> awful, the worst job I've ever had. Smelly, and smelly clothing. Just awful. Smelly clothing and smelly managers. Just terrible, young uh, kind of egos. Oh, it was just awful, everything. But they were, I couldn't get a transfer to Dundee, so I was having to work the summer in air, and I was dead sad. Um, and I came up to visit John for the weekend just on the train and then the ferry to Mall and the bus down through Mall. And I didn't have any idea what I was coming to. I'd never been to Mall. I'd been to Oban maybe years and years ago, but I had no idea what I was coming to. And I was just absolutely... Coming through Mull is one of the most memorable like bus journeys I've ever, ever done. And then getting down to the end and seeing this tiny island and... 
just thinking, I, I, like, I can't believe that that's, like, I thought I knew John, but then I saw where he was from and I thought, I, I don't, I feel like there's a whole new thing, dimension. Um, yeah. And that was a brilliant weekend. Uh, like, John's family were just amazing. We went up every hill to every beach, Columbus Bay. There was a dance on the Friday night. I couldn't believe we were in dancing on the badminton court, you know, yeah. like I'd never done badminton court dancing before. Right. <laughs> I'd only ever been to like nightclubs and stuff. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, it was, there was a live band on actually. Do you remember who was playing in the band? Something, what were they called? Not something Moon by any chance, was it? Mm-hmm. Don't, it was like something juice. Mystery juice. Mystery juice. Tim Matthews band. Whoa, what a fantastic first gig to go to. That's, that's Mr. Juice. So Tim's from Dervig. Right. He lives in uh, uh, Shetland now. I'm hopeful to talk to him in the future. The, the, I asked Georgia, a few, my wife, a few months ago, what, you know, what was the best gig you've ever been to? Because you've not been to that many. And she said, actually, it was probably a mystery juice gig. Just thought they were fantastic. And thought Tim, on the fiddle at lead, was just the greatest front man I'm ever. Pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it was mystery juice. Yes. Um, oh, John got very drunk and was very badly behaved at the dance. Right. And had to go and apologise to Judith Jardin the next day okay. for being badly behaved at the dance, which at least think, you know, in a small place like Iona, you can do that. You know, you can go the next day and go, that was really badly behaved. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I was sick of I'm that. sorry. That was terrible. So the, the kind of the weekend drew to a close and I was just waiting to go on the ferry. And John's youngest sister, younger sister, she worked in the pub at the time. Well, in the restaurant, not the pub. She was only 14 or 15. Um, and she came out and said, uh, they're looking for staff at Martyrs Bay if, if you want a job. And I was like, you know, and John was saying, well, it's up to you, you know, like, if that, if, if you want to. And I got on the ferry thinking, I can't, I can't come to his island. Like, you know, that wouldn't be right. That would be, that wouldn't be right. And then the skipper stopped the ferry in the middle of the sound because there was dolphins all around. Oh, my And I God. was going, well, I could come to his island. Yeah. His island has dolphins. Um, and yeah, it so was... So dolphins come to <laughs> <laughs> So I just thought, actually, yeah, definitely. You know, if, if ever were, there were a kind of a sign of like, no, you should definitely. Um, so I think it was like the next weekend. I was like, bye-bye, Burger King. <laughs> Burger off, Burger King. Yes, exactly. And that was brilliant. I did four summers down with the Grants and oh, you just brilliant. worked your socks off, yeah. lived on your tips. Yeah. Um, and macaroni cheese. And yeah, and lasagna on a roll. Um, and and then went back to, like back down to air with money, you know, for the year. Like it was, it, it worked out perfectly. Yeah. And it also meant that I kind of, I mean, I knew what it was like to be here in the summer. Yes. Which is not quite the same as being here all year round, but at least it, you know, I I knew people and I knew, yeah, I knew the place. I was from a different angle though. So did you come from from college straight to Iona? What did you do after college? Uh, No, when we uh, graduated, we had a kind of idea. And I think it was partly because the prospect of moving to a small island permanently was a little bit terrifying. Yeah. Um, so the kind of 10-year plan was that we would work five years on the mainland, 
get you know some experience under our belts so that then we would go to Iona for five years and if it all went wrong we would have experience and, and we knew. would yeah and and we, we would have something to compare it to and also we we had to we had to save we had to earn enough money to be able to afford to come back yes um so that's what we did I mean it took us six years I think we did on the mainland in so the end where were you on the mainland Edinburgh, first of all. Um, what, were you, what were you doing in Edinburgh? I was actually still working on Iona and John got a job at the Royal Highland Centre at the Royal Highland Show. Fantastic. Um, in the show department. Okay. Trade stands. And then, completely coincidentally, I then got a job in the events department in the, the kind of marketing, the venue, the Royal Highland Centre. Okay. So we both worked there for a while and we lived in Edinburgh, Kerstorfin. Oh, I used to live in Kerstorfin. When were you at Gustafin? Um, 2000? I was 96 to 98. Oh, Craigmount Avenue. Oh, I was Craigmount Drive. Oh. Uh, Craigmount Drive, yeah. So, yeah, we were, we were in Gustafin just about a year. It's quite convenient for work then. It was dead handy. And then we did the thing where we thought we should buy somewhere right. and we couldn't afford to buy in no. Edinburgh but we ended up uh, buying a really lovely wee flat out in Linlithgow. Oh, um, nice. And, yeah, uh, Linlithgow was kind of a funny place because it's a total commuter town. Yeah. I actually didn't really have a sense of Linlithgow until I had my eldest wee boy who we had at, while we were still on the mainland and wasn't at work all day. I was like tooting about with a buggy. Yeah. And Linlithgow is a really, really lovely wee place and it's got absolutely everything you need. Yeah. So, so, yeah, we Beautiful were. Beautiful as well. Yeah. yeah. And in the meantime, I'd kind of moved through a couple of jobs. John had stayed in events, but had moved to a company called Rural Projects, who he still works for now. Like, that was such a good move for him as well. You know, they're yeah, friends rather than just colleagues. And in the meantime, I'd gone to national museums. Oh, I used to work for them as well. What did you? I was with the NMS in 2000 to... Actually, 1990 to 2000. I was a warder in the Museum of Scotland. Oh, were you really? Hi. So I was over in the dental hospital in the development team. Oh, cool. Yes, yes. Um, and that would have been, I think, end of 2000, start of 2001. So mm. probably after. Gosh. But I started as a um, marketing manager for, there was a like joint museum initiative. So the National Museum supported like the fisheries, the lighthouse yes. museum, yeah, the, the mining, mining museum, mining, all, yeah. all over the folk museum. So I went to all of the museums. Which started here? It might it might be the same thing because at the Museum of Folk Life, whatever it's, uh, uh, I can never remember what its actual title is. There's an Iona Gallery. Uh, it's probably that's that's probably the one. Then yeah, yeah. so it's from here originally. Uh, so I started off working doing like joint marketing for all of these museums that were all in little. I loved it, and it was like my first. Although I'd done a bit of like sales and marketing at the Royal Highland Centre, um, this felt like something that I could be good at if you know what I mean Um, and then in the course of it I because it was a fundraising and marketing team I started doing a lot of research for the fundraisers so if they were going out to meet people from you know corporate bodies and stuff I would get all the background information that they needed and really enjoyed that and so ended up kind of moving sideways into fundraising Fantastic. First of all, through like fundraising research, and then moving on to trusts, 
and then I went to work for the Thistle Foundation. What do they do? Um, they support people with disability and long-term health conditions. They were set up for war veterans. Basically, it's a it, it was a community mm-hmm. in kind of Craig Miller in Edinburgh, wow. and it was a it was yeah. it was a community of people who'd lost limbs and stuff in the war, yeah. and then it's developed over the years. Um, that was just a... Oh, no, I went to YWCA first. Okay. Forgot about that. Oh. Uh, I was at YWCA and then Thistle, and uh, my manager at Thistle was also on the board for another charity. So I started doing a bit of freelance for them, and that's what got me into freelance. Ah, fantastic. So the connections that you made at the Royal Highland Show, have they been useful ever since? Were there, are, there, are there lines that draw out into your life since that point? Um, more so for John than than for me because of the people that he deals with, not just in his job, but also in his job as a farmer. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of overlap from the kind of people that we met early on in our in our careers. In fact, we had a friend staying last week who we worked with at the Royal Highland Centre and we hadn't seen her for 17 years or something. That's great. Um, so that was really nice. Yeah, these, it's these things that matter, these friendships that last for years that matter so much. Like, yeah. That's what brings meaning to so much, I think. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of the most important thing, I suppose, was keeping, like, John carried on working for rural projects when we moved back here, um, and I carried on working for the Thistle Foundation remotely. Right. And at that point, that was still quite a risk for them to take, you know, yes. nobody really knew remote how work. remote working, you know, nobody, the IT department couldn't really get their head around how they were going to connect the laptop. And we had dial-up as well, you know. Um, but trust fundraising is like the ideal job to do remotely so far. Yeah. So how, when you come to live in Iona, you've got one kid. We had one when we arrived, yeah. A six-month-old baby oh, when so we arrived. Oh, wow. So not too conscious of the world around them no. to say that. But, and how, how did you feel when you when you set foot on the island for that time saying, right, this is, it. This is us giving ourselves five years? Uh, and how, how long ago was that? It was in 2006. <laughs> um, so I guess it's worked. <laughs> yeah, so far, so good. I always say the good outweighs the bad, and as long as the good out- is outweighing the bad, you know, it's not... <coughs> that's a very honest appraisal. I it's, think that's it's not without vital. its challenges. Oh, totally. um, but as long as the good outweighs the bad, then, then we're still here. Yeah. I was kind of terrified. There's so many layers to arriving in a community that you're vaguely familiar with, but but then you're going to really be part of, to taking over a family farm and moving into the house that your in-laws are moving out of. Oh my goodness, nothing, no pressure. Um, like, yeah, to even, even things like, you know, I was very conscious of the fact that everybody that I knew on Iona, I knew through John or Annabelle or whatever, like my in-laws, I knew through John's family, really. So I was kind of arriving without my own connections. Which is daunting. Yeah. Especially when you've got a wee person, because they they are the, the they have to be your focus for so long. Yeah. Uh, although, fortunately for me, it turned out that he was actually the key to getting established here because yeah. Cameron was the kind of first the eldest, if you like, of a batch of babies. Now, there's very seldom been a batch of babies on Iona, yeah. and it just so happened that there were, were there five? 
Okay. Um, so there was this ready-made group of Here. either women who were due babies or had very new babies. And so we established a kind of informal play group. There wasn't anything like that at the time. Um, so we established a kind of weekly coffee at the hotel, either the Argyle or the Columba. And that, that was kind of transformative for me because I had all of a sudden... A social network. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's brilliant. I think that's when you start to feel m- more like it's your place as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in hindsight that it was probably about two years before the journey back to Iona felt like coming home rather than leaving home, you know, whenever I went to Dundee or whatever. So that's that's a really interesting question is, when is the point as an outsider that you become an insider? And do you ever really become an insider? And this is the question I ask myself. Yeah, I think it, it is a really interesting question. I think that Iona is particularly, I don't know, open yeah. to... Uh, it, we actually have quite a transient population in some ways because so many, yeah. you know there's there's a lot of posts up at the abbey that are only for two or three years yeah. so people have just long enough <laughs> to bring their families here yeah. to you know have their children in the school and then they move off we were very aware when we started doing the whole project for example that all of the people on the committee at that time were incomers and we had to work really really hard to make sure that we weren't that we had the right to actually take on such an ambitious project. That's something that runs across communities all throughout the Highlands and Islands. There's no two ways about it. That sense of, yeah, there's some some places you have, I know with the village hall that I, I know fairly well, there was a sense originally of, well, that, we didn't do that. That was someone else did that. Yeah. And it takes a while for that sense of community ownership to come back into something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Although my father-in-law had said years ago, you know, uh, particularly in a very small place, he says he'd kind of maybe made a comment about, oh, there's always new people coming in with new ideas. And then I think he caught himself and said, well, actually, but nothing would ever happen if it weren't for the fact that people come in because they're enthusiastic and they'll be enthusiastic about it. Yeah until they're not, and then someone else has to come in. I think we definitely need it. And Iona's, you know, it's seen massive transformations, and that's been because of the core population, if you like, of people who are here working really hard and keeping businesses going and the the community going, and then new people come in with... They don't have the energy, or or it's very difficult to find the extra energy within the community to to take on a big project, like the housing project was a yeah. good example, you know. Yeah. And that was kind of the baby of um, some locals and some incomers, if you like. Yeah. So, But it only happened because of that, the kind of steadfastness of the very local population alongside the, the energy and skills, new skills all the time coming into Iona. Totally, yeah. I think that's, we are, we're, we're changing populations a lot of the time and, you know, some people come and some people go and some people stay and I think that's it, is that there's a danger of seeing our communities as cuthy little curiosities on, yeah. the, on the border of the Atlantic and that's not the case at all. We are we're organisms that are flailing around and striving to succeed and succeeding and failing. And, you know, like any other community, we're we're all of these things and everything more. Yeah. We just happen to live somewhere 
that's remote to somewhere else, but then, you know, they're remote to us. Where are you yeah. going to put the centre of your map? Exactly, exactly. There's a really good article about that, actually. Oh. I must try and remember who it's by. Um, it's a good few years off oh. ago now, but somebody talking about how London's remote, you know, basically yeah. the, the concept of remoteness is just all wrong. Subjective. It's entirely subjective. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. So let's talk about um, your the reality of of your life now how do you manage to make a living these days what how do you do it if you don't mind me asking yeah no like uh probably like most people on iona i have lots of people have more than one job yes. not most people actually but lots of people do i'm really lucky i like i was very lucky in that i was able to do the job that i love and coincidentally happened to be you know competent at that I was able to do that remotely. Um, but I did get to the point where I was kind of fed up not being part of a team. And I knew I needed I that kind of aspect. <laughs> um, yeah, it's nourishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and also, you know, the working from home, sometimes when you're uh, the wife of a farmer, doesn't always work. <laughs> uh, you're too accessible, quite frankly. So I managed to persuade good friends, Mike and Katie, um, to let me do a day in the shop, the, the craft shop. And so I... Best coffee on Iona, you say? Absolutely, yeah. best coffee on Iona. And, like, an absolutely brilliant team yeah. to be part of. It's really something, that shop is brilliant. It really is. And it's, you know, it's not just about the shop and the bricks and mortar. It's There's an ethos. You know, the craft shop always supports the music, concerts and stuff they work with. Uh, Gordon and Comar to to bring gigs to Iona and, and I think that it's never really they don't shout about it at all but you know they've been so responsive they put up all the musicians and feed them and give them beds and stuff so yeah it's just a it's a brilliant thing to be part of I refer to it as my happy place because it's it's also nice when you're a bit older to do the welcoming to the tourists. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, yeah, I remember, you know, working on Iona when I was younger, you sometimes felt a bit under siege by the sheer numbers of people arriving on the island, whereas I think you can do a little bit of a better job of yeah. welcome when you're a little bit older. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoy that, yeah. Iona's visitor offer is fantastic i must say it's changed a lot since i came here although i do miss the secondhand bookshop where the uh the the, de- the deli is i loved it and i remember seeing a copy of a james bond book that i'd never seen before in there yeah. i was so keen to get it but it was too expensive one other day a week i work freelance for iona community ah. which i get I, I kind of fell into that as well and that um it did strike me that i knew they were looking for fundraising skills and uh, and Peter McDonald who was the leader at the time had asked me to go and speak to him about the campaign that they had coming up to uh, redo the accommodation spaces in the abbey right it seemed like a good fit to be able to use use my skills locally yeah, and get paid for it <laughs> what you know you know because obviously I use my skills for the hall and stuff as well but yeah, um, that's a voluntary yeah. role uh, so yeah, that was nice, and I've been uh, that campaign has has been yeah amazing to be part of. Very interesting organisation. 
Yes. So, Can you say a little bit about them? What are they? Because we've not really touched on them in the, in the owner visits we've had so far um, on, on the on the podcast. So for someone listening in Shanghai, what is the Iona community? The Iona community is not, as many people think, an entire population of Christians um, that populate the island. Many people think that Iona is just a, you know, a kind of Christian population. Iona community is Glasgow-based. Reverend George MacLeod, I think in the late 30s, early 40s, decided he would rebuild the abbey and he brought unemployed working class men from Govan along with ministers and they rebuilt the abbey and then made it into this place of pilgrimage. So since, I can't remember when it was completed, maybe the 60s or slightly earlier, but since then, so they basically have guests. They're based in the abbey. It's kind of private spaces in the abbey. Um, But Iona community deliver the worship. So it kind of carries on being used for its original purpose and that, of work and worship, I think, are the themes that people go and stay, but they also, like, do the dishes and and things like that. But um, increasingly, they're a kind of activist organisation as well. They're all about peace and social justice. And you quite often see members being kind of carried off from the uh, Trident um, protests and things like that. Not a bad thing at all. No, no, exactly. I mean, they're actually a really interesting organisation, they're lucky to have Iona and Iona's lucky to have them, if you like. Um, I think there hasn't always been a harmonious relationship between the Iona community and the local community, but I would say probably, um, in my experience, there's there's more connections and more bridges than there's ever been in the past. You know, Iona community is just one of a selection of large organisations that regularly tell Iona's story for for us. Historic Environment Scotland, National Trust for Scotland and Iona Community. So we're quite used to having our story told on our behalf. Um, I think that's why it's been important for us to start kind of trying to shout above that yes, now and again. Yeah. And that brings us to this wonderful community asset that we're sitting in right at the moment. Can you say where we are? Where are we at the moment? Because someone And can you describe this space for me? Uh, we're in the village hall. It's basically the main community space on Iona. Everything happens here. It's uh, it's a elderly building, 91 this year. Everybody's incredibly fond of the village hall and everybody has an absolute treasure trove of memories that have been made in the village hall, um, which is not hard to imagine as we're sitting here and the sun's streaming in the windows. But it's definitely at the end of its life. Yeah. For you, your first memory of uh, Iona is actually inv- involves the village hall. From yeah. that, that. Yeah. what? Well, how is the the village hall? Village hall. How is the village hall figured in your life? It's so important. I mean, not just because I, like, as part of my kind of, I need to be involved in things and make different connections. Joined the hall committee, um, so it's it's been significant for me. But it's basically, it's it's where everything happens. So all the school plays, yeah. playgroup, yeah. you know, endless Fridays. Um, well, it was Tuesdays for a while, and then Fridays. Zumba, you know, everything that you did out of the house that wasn't going to the pub, yeah. which you just don't really do once you've got small children, um, is in the hall. Yeah. Dances, all the 
at people's weddings, you know, everything, everything happens in here. Did you have your own wedding here? No, we didn't. We actually got married in Dundee oh, nice. before. Yeah, the, the prospect of trying to arrange an island wedding when we didn't live here was far too daunting. Aye. We'll maybe have a dance sometime in the new hall. <laughs> not, exactly, yeah. So what's your favourite event that you've been at here in the hall, would you say? Is there one thing that's, or would it, it's, is it maybe unfair? To no, no, I, my absolutely abiding favourite memory, which was a very, very painful memory for quite a few years, but now is my favourite memory, is the year of the school Christmas play when I had to go and remove my child and one other child off of the stage because they were fighting during um, Peace on Earth and they nearly knocked the baby Jesus off the stage. Um, and I was just, I was, I was so mortified and appalled. Um, and I got a very big row from my mother-in-law oh, for having very badly behaved three-year-old. But a three-year-old, a three-year-old does as a three-year-old wants. Absolutely, and they wanted to have a wrestle. They, you know, they'd been on stage for forty minutes. There was no way they were going to last out the. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's probably my favourite in hindsight memory. Um, but yeah, too too many too many to mention. Dances, discos, yeah, a good friend's wedding speech, which will remain one of the best wedding speeches I've ever. Basically, like a stand-up comedian. Yeah, lots of good memories. And what about the Iona uh, Music Festival? What's that like? That was just when I when I actually look back on it and think about it because uh, it was basically Mike at the craft shop and me and Roddy and then people like Gordon McLean and yeah. stuff got involved you know we just thought we should just go for it we yeah. should just go for it I and never made it I'm gutted it was, and I were going to come down with the boat one time and stay on the boat and, but we just didn't manage it yeah oh. it was it was amazing to the point that we actually got I think a little bit kind of nonplussed about big names like singing you know in the library or or on the stage but yeah one of the terrifying moments was when Idlewild were playing and everybody the place was literally jumping and I was standing up on the side going please don't go through the floor please don't just collapse (laughs) Um, and we couldn't do it last year just because the building every year it was more difficult to make the space kind of hold the event you know and every year you do it the expectations from like ticket holders but also the bands and stuff all increased and we just couldn't really manage that but we hope to do it again what was your favorite gig at the uh, music festival is there anyone that sticks out at all um absolutely loved Probably every performer the first year, mm. Alexei Murdoch, who I just fell in love with. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I'd seen uh, King Creosote, and he was brilliant. But the f- last year, Frightened Rabbit, uh, as the main uh, uh, headline band, and I mean that was just you know, Idle World will always be impressive. Yeah, but course. we're but we're almost a, a little bit like guy, uh, Oh well, shot. yes. Oh we'll go and go and see Roddy do stuff again. Yeah. Well they're, done, Roddy. Yeah. But I mean they're uh, always impressive and I don't fail to be impressed by them. But then yeah. when you see these other ones and yeah, I think 
but there's a few characters who play with various bands that I've really grown to enjoy as well over the time. Andrew Mitchell, who goes by Andrew Vasilic. Yeah. Um, and he's from Dundee, so I have a slight fondness for... Uh, they came with the Hazy Janes, I think, the yeah. first year. With um, Liz Lockhead as well? Uh, that was the last year, was it? Right. She did actually kind of, like, did a bit of performing or poetry right after... Actually, that's probably one of my favourite moments is the school choir opening the festival because they just, they just had no doubt that they had every right to be on the stage alongside these big names. Yeah. Like, and they loved the fact that they were on the uh, poster and everything. T-shirts, brilliant. But you talk about the nature of the, the hall um, being more difficult to maintain or look after each year upon year. What are the plans for the future of the Village Hall? The plans have been in development since 2012. Right. So right back in 2012, we realised we actually had to shut for a winter because yeah. uh, we had flooding under the floor and it just warped. Oh so we did a lot, I think we got a little bit of funding, like £12,000 funding. We painted and got blinds and put in the air source heat pump, but we realised oh, that... Is that worked out okay? It's a, yeah, it's all right. I mean, it's it's at the end of its life okay. now, but we realised that actually we were going to have to spend that kind of money almost every year just to keep the doors open. So we got a little bit of funding to do a feasibility study um, to see how much it would like, cost to get a new roof. And basically at that point, we were looking at refurbishing the hall. We got in consultants and architects who came up with two designs, a new build and a refurb. And at that point, we were pretty sure that people wouldn't want to knock down this hall. And right enough, when we did all of the consultation, which we did locally, but also on Facebook and you know online and did questionnaires and stuff, it was almost 50-50, which is, as we all know, and a very difficult thing to take forward when things aren't clear-cut. And then pass. Yes, <laughs> yeah. However, when we took out all of the social media feedback and just Iona just Iona feedback, it was 96% in favour of a new hall. Okay. Um, and I think that was... So, so clearly people felt nostalgic about it, but they didn't have to sit in a freezing cold hall in the winter for playgroup. Since then, you know, for the past six years, we've been we've been honing the plans, working with the community at every stage, consulting, working on funding, and we got actually the the main piece of the funding jigsaw is Big Lottery, who are now called the National Lottery Community Fund, and we got news that they had agreed to fund us. Actually, when we were all in here for the school Christmas play. So almost the whole island was gathered in the hall and they phoned, actually my phone rang during the performance and I was like, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. And then realised it was big lottery. Um, and so then we had basically had a year to get the rest of the funding in place. Where's that come from? Various places. I mean, the big chunks are always going to come from funders, you know, so the Robertson Trust, um, Argyll and Islands Leader, yeah. Big Lottery and a handful of other trusts. But the local effort's been absolutely tremendous. The craft shop did a art postcard, the hotel did um, a whole weekend where they donated uh, profits to the hall. 
most businesses, most individuals, people have done everything from cooking, crocheting, running, golfing, and the school kids have been, I mean, they are so on message. Well, it's theirs <laughs> for the future, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, it's just short of 100,000, I think, that's been raised locally. That's amazing. Which is huge. Yeah. And we are hopeful, basically, in the next few days, we're hopeful to close the, the funding gap for the build. Yeah. There will still be other things that we need to fund. Yes. Yeah. which will help the building function in lots of different ways. Like we we need to get stage lighting and yeah. sound equipment, but the priority is to get the building up. And is there somewhere that a listener could contribute to this? Is there a GoFundMe page or anything? Like that? We have a Just Giving page and absolutely every penny counts. It's if you search for Iona Village Hall, you would find it. Or on our website, you can also see it's ionavillagehall.org and you can see various ways of, of getting in touch with us. One of the things that we're doing through consultation, people felt that the floor in the hall is one of its most precious things because people think it's a sprung floor, which it's not, but it is brilliant <laughs> to dance on. So we're actually reusing as much of the floor Lovely. as we can in the new hall on the stage, but also we're creating a, a donor's wall so if you've donated over a thousand pounds, you can be on and you get your name engraved on one of the old floorboards on the donor's wall. And I've seen one of them engraved already and it looks amazing. Chris, you've got loads of Blu-rays there as well. That's well, our film club, thats we started the film club and it's a winter film night. Nice. And that's one of the things that's been so successful. And it's amazing the people that come out. But we do have to tell people to bring a hot water bottle. So, we'll, yeah, the Blu-rays will go to the new hall. Fantastic. So just before we round up, in terms of the Iona that, Iona that you hope your children inherit, what's your vision for that Iona? Difficult question, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I hope that it continues to be vibrant. I hope it continues to be a place where people want to take risks to start new businesses as they are, you know, the number of new kind of, or, or developed businesses that have come up in the last 10 or 15 years is massive. You know, people think carefully about how how they make a living and how they do it from a small island without yeah. uh, treading too heavily on their surroundings. Yeah, I hope, I hope there's still a vibrancy. I hope the school continues to be a vibrant and exciting place. Before Cameron started primary school, I think there was six in the school and they're up to something like 24 or 26 well, thank you very, very much for your time. I think that's brilliant. Not at all. My pleasure, I think. <laughs> when it's edited down to two and a half minutes. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Joanne. It was great to spend time with you. So there we go. As ever, more information and links can be found on whatwedointhewinter.com. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so by donating via PayPal or Patreon. You'll find the details on the website under the Donate tab. I do this entirely for free because I think it really matters, and any support you can offer is much appreciated. If you wanted to leave a review on whichever platform you use to listen to the podcast, I'd be very grateful, as the more reviews and ratings there are, the more people can get to hear these stories and join us on our adventures together. Thanks to those of you who reach out to say hello, and also to those that pass on more information about Bits and Bobs in previous episodes. 
That's fantastic. Thank you so much. It's always lovely to hear from you. Well, for the moment, that's me exhausted my library of interviews. So I'm going to maybe take a week or two before I'm back with the next episode as I try to build up a reserve of interviews. June's been a crazy busy month and July looks kind of similar. So I may have to pull back to one episode every fortnight for a wee bit. So I apologise about that. But um, yeah, (laughs) I'm going a bit (laughs) cross-eyed. Anyway, thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Shinagate. More than thanks.